Dear Father, as we come before you today, as we continue in uh, the study of your word, the book of Revelation, we pray once again for hearts which are willing to be opened before you, for eyes that can see beyond the horizons of this life, for minds that can understand uh, the eternal plan of yours from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world, that we may encompass and grasp exactly what you have uh, destined for all mankind and how we should live before you as your people. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now life is full of uh, choices. Right? Life is full of choices. And there are big choices and there are small choices. So small choices are like, uh, you know, uh, what should I eat today for breakfast? What toothpaste should I buy? Uh, what toothbrush should I use? Those are small choices. I guess the bigger choices are like, who should I vote for as a president of Singapore? But uh, there are also bigger choices, I think, in life which will affect uh, us you know, in a really big way. I remember when I was at school in uh, Australia, I had a friend of mine who was an A student. Uh, he went to university with me, and uh, he started taking drugs. And as a result, he never finished his university, and that was a very big choice for him, isn't it? The choice to take drugs when he was in university. But today, I think chapter 14 uh, challenges us with the very biggest choice that all of us have to make for uh, all of our life. And it's a, it's a choice that we have to consciously make because it's a choice that so often for us we fall into without taking seriously. Now chapter 14 of the book of Revelation comes in what is seen by many people as the third cycle of visions given by God to John. Okay, now if you look up here, uh, I, I don't want to go through all the whole thing that we go through every week, right? Because we are to chapter 14 and by the time I reach the end of the book, the, the whole sermon will just be introduction. Okay? But the first uh, cycle was of uh, the seals, and the seals obviously were all the judgments of God. And um, then uh, over the last uh, weeks before that, we saw that there was another cycle of visions called the trumpets, and again, that focused on the, on the judgments of God again. But here, in these cycle of visions, as we saw last week, the focus is not so much on judgment, but on spiritual conflict. Spiritual conflict. Uh, the conflict between Satan and God. Uh, and uh, the lamb and uh, the beast, right? So, the next slide. So, this was um, drawn to, you know, for us by a member of our congregation. So, last week we saw that uh, Satan, symbolically represented by this big red dragon, had always been opposed to God right from the very beginning. And at a very crucial time in history, it was seeking to destroy uh, this baby who was born to this woman. And this baby, obviously, was Jesus. But God uh, protected Jesus throughout his life and took him to heaven. But as a result, Satan was cast down to earth because it could no longer accuse uh, the people of God before God. Because the blood of Jesus actually gives Satan no grounds for accusing uh, any Christian or any of God's people before God. So Satan, we saw last week, is now cast down to earth. And on earth, he seeks to persecute the church. And how he does that is uh, by uh, bringing up, like, again, two other symbolic creatures. One is this um, many-headed beast, which comes out of the sea, which represents raw pressure or raw power uh, against uh, Christians to make them renounce their faith. And uh, there was another beast, this beast out of the land, which can do miraculous signs. Uh, and this beast represents false religion. And uh, this false religion is, again, uh, getting people of the world and even Christians, to turn away from the true worship of the Lamb. So, by the end of uh, last week, it was a very dark and ominous and threatening picture of the world that we live in. Right, just to give you an example, the next slide. Okay, so this is a picture of the first beast and the picture of the second beast. Uh, in the first beast, it, it describes the influence of the first beast in this way. In verse 8, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Uh, this is the first beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Now of the second beast, it says, because of the signs uh, the second beast was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. Uh, he was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to re worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had that mark, which is the name of the beast, the number of his name. 
Now, what I want you to take note of here is the influence of the first beast and the second beast. And the influence here is very, very wide, isn't it? Because it says there in verse 8, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. And it says here, the second beast will deceive the inhabitants of the earth. So it seems as if the, the environment that we live in is very much geared towards uh, worshipping uh, this beast and Satan and turning away from God and the Lamb. But the question is, as we come to chapter 14, is this the wise way of living? Right, because uh, is this the logical way of living where we, we don't offend the beast, we get on with life, we don't rock the boat? Well, I think it's, it's obviously the answer as far as as Christians is no, it's not the right way of living. But chapter 14 actually reinforces that. Okay, chapter 14 reinforces that. It's, it is a counterpoint to the visions that we saw before. They don't stand alone, but they're actually related to the visions of chapter 12 and 13. Okay? So pay that attention. Now, in chapter 14, John sees another vision. And this is where you need to look at your Bibles. In chapter 14, verse 1, it says, And then I looked. So a new vision, I looked. And there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, the lamb that he sees here is not the same lamb that he sees in chapter 13, verse 11. Because you remember in chapter 13, verse 11, the second beast with the deceptive powers, the false religious powers, he looks like the lamb, but he speaks like the dragon. But here, in the chapter 14, he sees the real lamb, the true lamb of chapter 4 and 5. Right? That Jesus, the lamb that was slain, and whose blood purchased men and washes men clean of their sins. This is the lamb that he sees here in this new vision. And this lamb is standing on Mount Zion. Now, Zion is the hill in which the temple in Jerusalem is built. But the vision that he sees of this Mount Zion is not the literal, physical Zion in Jerusalem because he's looking up here in heaven. So Mount Zion here is actually a vision, a, a, a symbolic heavenly vision of God and his people. It's a heavenly vision. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it speaks of this heavenly uh, Mount Zion. Right? So in chapter 12, verse 22 of Hebrews, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Okay, so where is this taking place? It is taking place before the Lamb in heaven, in the heavenly Jerusalem, okay, in Mount Zion, up in heaven. And with him are 144,000 whose names uh, who had the name on their foreheads of uh, the Lamb or of God. Okay, now who are these 144,000? Uh, this is where you have to pay attention, look up here, okay? So, it, it was very complicated, so I thought it was easier if I give you a pie chart, you know? Pie chart, easier to understand. Okay, that's... So some people say, uh, these 144,000 are male Jewish virgins. Okay, because in chapter 14, verse 4, it says that... Uh, these are those who did not defile themselves with women. Literally, the words are, these are virgins, okay, male virgins. Some people say, well, 144,000, these are male virgins, okay, because of 14 verse 4. But again, this is really, really unlikely, right, because in the whole of the book of Revelation, uh, nothing is made of uh, the difference between uh, Gentiles and Jews uh, in the sense of being saved in this way. And if it was just about male virgins, then uh, that disqualifies all of us because we are not uh, Jews for once. And uh, for the worst of you of women, okay, then you will not get to heaven as well. Uh, because obviously, you know, it's about male virgins only. So it's very unlikely that it's just about male virgins. Okay? So some other people say, next slide, that it's made out of just Jewish people. 144,000 are Jewish people. Uh, the reason is because uh, this 144,000 uh, looks back to chapter 7, and in chapter 7, the 144,000 is made out of 12 tribes of Israel, of 12,000 people. Okay, uh, for those of you who've been reading the book of Revelation, who've been following the sermon series, you remember that that's what happened in chapter 7. But again, this does not make sense, okay? 
Because it doesn't make sense of the, the, the visions. Think of it, this is not a vision by itself. It is part of the visions that come in chapter 12 and 13. So what he's actually trying to say here, next slide, is that in chapter 13, uh, just before, if you look here in chapter 13, and, uh, chapter 13 verse 18, right? It talks about how the people who belong to the Satan and the second beast and the first beast, they are sealed with the number 666. Not a literal number, right? Not on their foreheads, but symbolically they belong to the beast. So here the 144,000 are symbolically sealed with the Father and the Lamb's name. So we're not talking about Jews here. Neither are we talking about male Jewish virgins. But we're talking about a contrast between the people who are marked with the 666 and people who are sealed with, by, with, uh, with God's name and the Lamb's name. Right, so these are two separate groups of people. Okay, and it's actually a contrast between one and the other. And I think that there's a reason why this vision is given to us. The next slide. Right? Okay, so it's, I, I think it's all of God's people here. Okay? So the next slide. Uh, next slide, yep. I think there's a reason why we are told about this 144,000 people. Now, uh, this might seem a bit complicated, but it all becomes very clear. Uh, hopefully, you will be able to read the book of Revelation all in one shot for yourself. Uh, it only takes about 45 minutes. Just don't go on YouTube or watch TV for 45 minutes. But you'll see that actually when you compare the visions about this, the saved people, there's a lot of similarity between chapter 7 and chapter 14. Because John gets three visions, right? He sees 144,000 people on earth. Then he, he, sorry, he hears about the 144,000 on earth. Right? Then he sees a multitude in heaven. And in chapter 14, he sees 144,000 in heaven. Okay, so there is the first vision in Revelation chapter 7 where he hears of 144,000 who are sealed on earth. Then he looks up and he sees a great multitude in heaven. And then chapter 14, he, sees, he looks up and he sees 144,000 on earth with the Lamb in heaven, right? And I think that when you look at them, they're all the same group of people. Uh, all the more so when you look at the details of these three sets of people. Okay, so the next slide. Okay, so uh, this is a graphic representation for those of you who are more visual, right? So there's 144,000 he sees on the earth. Then he sees a multitude with the Lamb in heaven. Then he sees 144,000 with the Lamb in heaven. Okay, so the next slide. Okay, uh, I hope you can see that. So if you look at the details, there's a lot of similarities between these three groups of people. First of all, this number, 144,000 people, is found nowhere else in the rest of the Bible. It's only found in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14. Okay, so again, there's a link there, right? There's a link between... Uh, what we see in this vision of heaven and this vision on earth. Again, in chapter 7, there's a seal which is put on their foreheads. Okay, in chapter 7. And in chapter 17, 14, sorry, again, the name of the Lamb and God is written on their foreheads. Now, the multitude in heaven, they are said uh, to be washed, uh, given robes which are washed and made white by the blood of the Lamb. But in chapter 14, uh, these people who sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, they are said to be, um, they are said to be redeemed from the earth. The, the word there literally is the word purchased from the earth. Uh, and we know that the only way you are purchased from the earth is by the blood of the Lamb. Okay, so in chapter 5 verse 8 it says, with your blood you will purchase, you purchase men from God. And this word redeem here is the same word as the word purchase, right? So basically, the multitude in heaven are saved by the blood of the Lamb. And the 144,000, they are also saved by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, okay, the multitude, where are they? They are standing in front of the Lamb. And the 144,000, they are standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. Uh, again, last similarity... The 144,000 he sees on earth are servants of our God. The multitude in heaven, they serve God. 
day and night. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, what's the point, right? Why does he see the same vision of God's people three times throughout the book of Revelation? Is that, you know, uh, he's got, uh, you know, deja, deja vu or something, right? He's seeing the same thing over and over again. I think the reason is because what is tr- the message that is being said to us here is that the 144,000 which are sealed are the same 144,000 who eventually make it up to heaven. Remember we said the 144,000 is not a statistic. It is symbolic. Right? It, it actually represents the full number of God. And what's happening here is the full number of God who are sealed on earth are the same number who actually get to heaven in the end. When he looks up in heaven with the Lamb, he doesn't see 100, 143,999. He sees 144,000. And what is actually being shown here is even through the suffering of chapter 12 and chapter 13, God's people, not a single one of them, will be lost. They've not shrunk, they've not changed. And ultimately, it's a picture of safety, right? Safety. See, in the world that we live in, it's quite uh, uncertain, right? So people say, oh, you need, you, know, you, need, you need to put your money in gold. Or maybe you need to diversify your, your money so that, you know, you don't know whether they put it in US dollars, you know, US dollars going up. Maybe you should put it in Australian dollars, but Australian dollars going down. Right? Maybe you should put it in the Swiss franc. But ultimately, there is no safety in this world, isn't it? Except the safety found in being one of God's people. If you're one of God's people, even through the midst of Satan attacking you, even through the midst of persecution from the first beast, even in the midst of deception of the second beast, God will ensure that every one of His people gets to heaven to be with the Lamb. See, what are these people like? They are saved, but they are also safe. They are also safe in God. But it's not enough that we just see that they are safe, isn't it? Because this is we need to understand what verse 4 to verse 5 means. Okay, so what are they like? They are saved people. But what are they doing uh, during this time when they are being persecuted by Satan? Well, look at what it says there in verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They will purchase from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, what exactly does it mean okay, that these people do not defile themselves to women that they are there? They are male virgins. Now, in the whole Bible, um, there is nothing which says that sex is wrong. Okay? Sex outside of marriage is wrong, but sex within marriage is fine. Uh, being a male virgin is not better than being a male married person. Okay, so this section doesn't jive with the rest of the Bible. It just talks about how oh, only virgins are, male virgins are going to go to heaven. So what is he talking about here? Well, I think that in other parts of the Bible, it talks about how faithfulness or purity of virginity is, is, can be used in a spiritual way, in a religious way. Now, Israel uh, was called to be a virgin before God in the sense that it, it, it didn't have, uh, commit adultery with other gods, right? other, other religions. So in 2 Kings chapter 19, which is up here, right, it says, this is the word of the Lord that God, the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises you and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. So, virginity can be used in a, in a spiritual way because if you're faithful to the Lamb, if you're faithful to God, then you will not commit adultery with other gods or other religious practices or give yourself over to, to doing things which are unfaithful to God. Now, we see the same thing in the next passage in the New, uh, in the New Testament. Okay, in 2 Corinthians, up here. And this is what he says. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived 
by the serpent's cunning, your minds may be somehow led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, or you have received a different spirit from the one you have received, or even a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Now, you notice here the way uh, this passage is phrased. The church, right, is promised as a pure virgin to Jesus Christ. But the moment the church is led astray from following Jesus to following a different Jesus, or a different gospel, or a different spirit, it is said to be unfaithful. It is not pure before God anymore. So what's happening here is, it is said of God's people that Yes, they are saved by God. They are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That's what it says there. Right? We were in slavery, but we were purchased by the blood of Jesus and made free. But we must keep being pure and faithful to God. And that's why, if you look at your passage, this verse is followed by exactly another sentence which says, They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Alright, look, look at that verse. Verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. See, that's the picture of purity before God, faithfulness before God. You always follow the Lamb, and you don't follow anyone else. But, the world is very different, isn't it? The world is different from, from the church in terms of being pure and being a virgin for God. In verse 8, which we'll get soon enough, it talks about how Babylon, Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. See, Babylon was a picture of Babel or Babylon which turned against God. Anti-God is a picture of anti-God. And basically, if you drink the wine of Babylon or Babel, you are, you are becoming adulterous. You, you live for this world. You live for other gods. You live for other religious practices. And what happens here is, God is saying to His people that they must only live purely as impurity for the Lamb. Uh, and that makes sense for the rest of it, because that's why there's no lie found in their mouths, they are blameless, because they do not live a lie, they don't speak and follow uh, the lies of the second beast. Now, a few weeks ago, I met this very rich retiree, right? He's uh, traveled the world for business, South America, Japan, Thailand, everything else. I was trying to evangelize him. And he was from a Catholic background. And he basically said to me that I believe that you can, if you do more good than bad, you will go to heaven. And I was challenging him. I said, no, I don't think so. You know, how much good do you have to do? Like, you know, you do 70% and maybe Jesus does 30 or do you do 30 and Jesus does 70? I said, no, which, which uh, proportion do you think it is for your life that you do more good? Uh, that uh, you'll get to heaven. I said, Jesus says that, you know, He redeems us by His blood. That means Jesus does 100%. It's not like, you know, Jesus washes me 70% clean, then I cut myself and I wash the other 30%, right? But He said, no, no, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I still believe that uh, what I'm saying is true. Like, I can believe in Jesus, but I still believe that, uh, you know, if I do more good than bad, I'll also be saved. But, you see, that's what this passage is talking about, isn't it? Because, by believing this, he's actually speaking a lie. Right? There is a lie in his mouth and he is not blameless. Which is what verse 5 is talking about. He's not being a pure virgin for the Lamb. He's not following the Lamb only, but he's following the thinkings and the thoughts of the second beast of this world. Because if you want to choose wisely in this life, for the life to come, then we must choose to only follow Jesus. There is only safety found, real safety found, if we give of ourselves only to the Lamb. If we only follow the Lamb. Now, in verse 6 uh, to verse 20, we are presented with a, a totally different picture, right? Because here are the people who do not choose wisely, but they choose foolishly. And uh, this is probably the harder part of the passage. Maybe not to understand, but I think to really grasp in our heart. In verse 6, it says, Then I saw another angel 
flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now as we look at this passage, uh, the angel is in midair and, and shouting out to the whole world, right? Imagine like this big CNN uh, 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 satellite or something and he's warning everybody every tribe language and people the eternal gospel now some people say how come he's preaching the eternal gospel but there's no Jesus in it and why is there no Jesus well I think it's part of like being in the scroll remember uh, earlier on uh, John was given this scroll to eat in chapter 10 and when he ate the scroll it was sweet in his mouth but bitter or sour in his stomach and we said that the bitter part of the message, the sour part of the message, was when you preach the gospel, there is also the idea of repentance and sin and judgment. Without the understanding of sin, repentance and judgment, there is no grasp of the grace of God. So what we see here is the bitter part of the gospel which is being preached, isn't it? And this angel is preaching the, the sour part of the message. You know, he says, judgment is coming, so you need to fear God and give Him glory. Worship God. Because... The hour is come. It's like a soccer game. Normal time is over. You're into injury time. There is great urgency to turn back to God. And unlike a soccer game where if you, uh, the final whistle blows, all you lose is a soccer game or maybe the World Cup, uh, there's, much something, there's something much greater that you lose if you fail to turn back to God now. And uh, we're given some terrible pictures of judgment, right? Because in verse 8 onwards it says, A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is the Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink of her maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured in full strength into the cup of his wrath. He'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day and night for those who worship the beast or his image or anyone who receives the mark of his name. Now, I think that uh, this verse uh, should be printed, should be framed and put up on your wall, right? Because it really warns us of the great danger of losing salvation. Because here there's a contrast between those in heaven, 144,000, and those who fail to turn back to God in time. And, and the first thing we have to note here is that the punishment is eternal. Okay, It's eternal punishment. That's what it says there. He, they were tormented and the smoke of their t- torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day and night for those who worship the beast and his image. Now, some people, I think a lot of people find that very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. I mean, when you think of your relatives or your friends uh, being tormented this way, and we think it's, you know, it cannot be saying that, right? It's, it's very unfair, and God wouldn't be like this. So some Christians will say, well, you know, I don't think that they're really tormented forever and ever. Maybe they just die, and they just, it's just smoke, right? Now, the problem is um, that that's not what the passage is saying and other parts of Revelation also do not agree that people just die and that's it. You see, in, in uh, chapter 20, verse 10, if you look up here, uh, sorry, next slide. Right. Look what it says there about the devil. But, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, in this passage, it is very, very clear, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There is no confusion, there is no vagueness. The Satan, the beast, false prophet, tormented forever and ever. And people say, well, okay, we can agree with that because, you know... um, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, they deserve to be tormented forever and ever and ever. 
But the thing is, the same language applies to those who follow the beast and the false prophet and Satan. And it's very hard for us to accept uh, because these may be people that we care very closely about, but we can't get away from what the passage is saying. Now some people will say, well, you know, isn't Jesus all about love and grace? Surely Jesus is all about love and grace. He would not speak of uh, condemning people forever and ever in this way. But look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 26. And Jesus says this, okay? Uh, it is not in red, but it is the words of Jesus. You can just look at the passage yourself, okay? Then Jesus says, And then he will say to those who is left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, we agree to that. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? Uh, he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did to, to do, did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So the first thing that, uh, that is very clear for us is, it, judgment is eternal. Okay, some people say, oh, you know, okay lah, uh, I, I live my life and I die, that's it. But, uh, you know, you don't even live your di- life and die, there is an eternity to it. Okay, so the choice is, chapter 13 and 12 and 13, you, you have the mark of God, the seal of God, and you suffer for 70, 60, 80 years, but then you go to heaven for eternity. But in chapter 14, the alternative is you have the mark of the beast, and you enjoy life for 60, 70, 80, 90 years, but then you suffer for eternity. So which is the logical, more preferable choice? better to suffer for this life and to live in, with the Lamb for the rest of eternity than to enjoy this life and to suffer for the rest of, your life, rest of eternity, isn't it? Better to have the seal of the Lamb and the Father and have eternity, the good quality of eternity than the, the mark of the beast and have terrible quality for eternity. But it's not just eternal, it's not just the eternal thing that is being shown here. It's, 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 it's the horrific nature of judgment. So he says here uh, that they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And the smoke of their tormented rises forever and ever. There will be no rest day and night for those who worship the beast in his image. Now, uh, various images are given of hell uh, and they all don't all make sense together, right? Because, you know, in the Gospels, hell is a very dark place. Uh, but how can it be really dark when there's burning sulfur at the same time, right? Okay? And then later on it talks about, you know, different images. But they're all images of, of torment and pain and suffering. So someone was telling me, you know, uh, they went to New Zealand to uh, go to the volcanoes. And apparently when you go to the volcanoes, it's very smelly. There's a lot of smelling sulfur. It really stinks, right? And also it's very hot because of the volcano. Now, imagine if you live in that situation for the rest of eternity. Imagine if I turn off the aircon in this room just for the next half an hour, you already be complaining how hot it is, right? But imagine if you have to live in that burning torment for the rest of your life. But the picture is also uh, emphasized here in verse 10, is that he says he will drink from the wine of God's fury which is poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. Now apparently, uh, in, a- in the ancient world, from what we understand from historians, wine used to be mixed with water. Okay, because, uh, you know, they drank a lot of wine and things like that. But they used to mix it with water, you know, three parts of wine to maybe one part of, of, of water, even ten to one, right? But what he's saying here is that in, in on Judgment Day, God's wrath will be poured out on you full strength. It won't be cut or diluted. It will be all poured out on you. Again, there's a contrast to verse 8, right? If, if you drink the wine of the adulteries of this world, of the Babylon of this world, then God will give you His cup 
but instead of wine, it will be full of 100% uh, God's fury. Now, just those two images alone should help us to think deeply and critically about life. Right, where is our eternal destination? Do we face drinking the cup of 100% undiluted God's fury? Do we live with the future of eternal uh, suffering? Or do we have the seal of God and the Lamb and we look forward to a heaven where we will be with the Lamb? Now, that's not enough. Um, there are two more examples of visions which are given. And they all come from agriculture, right? So in verse 14, John looks and he sees another vision. And there before me was a white cloud. Seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Now, in the, uh, in the Bible, the sickle is often uh, used as a symbol of judgment. Uh, the sickle is, is actually basically a sharp thing which is used to cut um, you know, wheat and things like that, and, uh, and to harvest it, then they use it to bang it and get all the wheat and everything else. But in the Bible, the sickle is, is used as a symbol of, of cutting down, it's harvesting time, and uh, you will either be saved or you will either be burned up. So in Matthew chapter 13, which is up here, right, it talks about how the harvest is, is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. Right, right here is Jesus. So as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Uh, the Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So here, if you look at this picture which was drawn for us on this passage, you see that here, the Son of Man, which is Jesus, has a sickle. And the angel said, you know, now the hour has come. Right? Uh, Take the sickle and reap because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now this sickle basically means that there is an appointed time where God's judgment will come. Uh, it is not a time which we can delay, not a time that you can postpone, uh, not a time that we can interrupt. When the harvest is ripe, Jesus will come with his sharp sickle and he will, he will reap. And it's a really terrible judge, picture of judgment to come. But in verse 17, uh, the picture is actually uh, changed a bit. Right? Because it tells you what happens during this sickle reaping time, right? the, the harvesting time. So another angel came out of the temple of heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Okay? This guy flying here, the small sickle. Right? And uh, a really terrifying picture is seen. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your, take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine because the grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed from out of the press rising as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Now, a wine press is uh, something in the... I think they still use it today. So for those of you who drink wine, this is what happens, right? They, they throw all the grapes in there. And what usually happens is the servant slave girls of those days would jump in and stomp on the grapes and all the grape juice would come out and then they, they then use the grape juice to put them into bottles and then eventually you drink them as wine. But here the picture is, is, is turned into a horror movie because instead of grapes, it is people who are being stomped on and blood, instead of grape juice, flows out of the, the, the wine, the wine vat. Oh, sorry, the grape, the, uh, the, sorry, what do you call that thing again? The, the, the wine press or the grape press or whatever, right? 
And um, here, this wine, uh, sorry, this wine, the blood is said to uh, flow out of the press as high as a horse's bridle. So imagine a horse, and you know the saddle? Okay, that's how high it is. That's how much blood there will be. And uh, the distance of this height of this uh, blood will be 1,600 stadia, which if you look at your footnotes at the bottom of your Bible, is 180 miles or 300 kilometers. Now again, as we study the book of Revelation, numbers are not statistics. Numbers are usually symbolic. So there's no point here trying to figure out, okay, how much is the average human blood? How much blood is there in one of you on average, right? And then we'll calculate, okay, how much blood would that be? Horses bridle, 180 miles, okay. That's how many people will die on judgment day. No, that's not what the point is, right? Because 1,600, I think it's a symbolic number for the four corners of this world, right? You know, four times four is 1,000. I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it's, it's one, 16, then plus another 100, that's, you know. So it's a very big area. The four corners of the world sort of thing will be filled with blood. So that's the sort of picture you're supposed to have in your mind. Now, you sort of think, well, what sort of picture is this? Well, the first picture of Sodom, uh, you know, of sulfur and burning sulfur and smoke and the wine of God's wrath was not strong enough for you. Then here's a really shocking picture of what Judgment Day will be like. That on that day, I don't know if God literally is going to, you know, stomp on everybody, but it's a very violent and bloody picture of what Judgment Day is like. Now, if we even have a percentage of an understanding of how terrible Judgment Day is like, then what this passage is trying to tell us is that even though chapter 12 and 13 shows us that there is terrible, terrible persecution of Christians from the world and from false religion, holding on to the Lamb, following the Lamb, being pure before the Lamb, having no lies in your mouth, being blameless before God, these things are the wise and logical decisions to make because you have eternity in mind. Now the first thing I think that uh, we can take as an application is when you read this passage, uh, I hope that it makes you have a heart to want to reach out to people for the gospel. Uh, you know, the first angel, right, in verse 6, his whole message is he's shouting out to the, to the whole world, right, fear God and give Him glory because the hour of judgment has come. There is time left for people to turn back to God. Don Carson uh, said, when he was uh, teaching people how to preach on this passage, he says, when you preach on this passage as a preacher, you must ask God for tears. Okay, but unfortunately, I, I'm not very emotional, so I, I, I can't cry. But it's a very, very sad, sad passage. Isn't it? Uh, a, a very, another uh, very famous uh, Bible teacher, Robert Murray McShane, also said that when you preach on hell, you should teach on it with tears. Because we believe the Bible speaks the truth. We believe that even though these may be symbolic pictures, they are imparting for us what it is really like in hell and what hell will be like. This is not the prosperity gospel, right? There's no, there's no, I don't think Revelation 14 will ever be preached at City Harvest or New Creation. Right? But this is the truth. The truth is, there is a bloody future, an eternal, terrible suffering future for those who do not have the blood of the Lamb. And you know, uh, I have relatives of mine. My, my uncle just came from Switzerland, the one we prayed for who recovered miraculously from cancer. cancer. He came to visit uh, Singapore just last week and he's still not Christian. Right? And I'm still telling him that you know, he has to take uh, his recovery seriously because... So what if you live for another 10 years or 20 years but you spend the rest of eternity in hell? There is no complacency here. Right? I don't think this uh, passage, Revelation 14... It says, uh, take your time, you know. It says, no, hell is a place that you really need to avoid. And that angel in verse 6 is warning the world to go out. You know, warning the world that uh, they need to repent. The second thing I think applies to us as Christians, uh, that we need uh, to continue to hold on to Jesus uh, as we wait for Jesus to come. See, look at what it says there in verse 12. I didn't actually touch on this because we didn't have enough time. But it says there, this calls for patient endurance 
on the parts of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Uh, and it says the same thing as verse 4, isn't it? Basically, it's, it's just another way of saying, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Be faithful and pure to the Lamb. Uh, like uh, Don Carson again was saying, he made some very good observations. He said, you know, he sees that so many Christians and churches today, uh, they're really interested in uh, things outside of what Revelation 14 is talking about. Many churches are interested in building bigger churches, better churches, mega churches, richer churches, and it becomes a purely human building you know, institution. You just want to build a church for the sake of building a church so it gets bigger and bigger, and uh, you can boast about it more. And as Christians, many Christians today are just more interested in uh, having uh, you know, happier lives, richer lives, better family life, better marriages, uh, you know, succeeding more at work. I mean, these are all good things. But the thing is, it is not the gospel that is being preached here by the angels, isn't it? It is not the message which consumes Revelation chapter 14. See, what is the business of the church? Uh, the business of the church is not teaching people how to be more prosperous, or to be healthier, or to be happier. God doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't need for you to be help, help, uh, happier, right? Uh, we already read, if God says, in prison for you to go, you will go to prison for you. If, to, if you have to die, you have to die, and that's it. And uh, Doc Carson made a very strong point to me personally, and he said, you know, if, if you're a pastor, and you're not interested in saving people from hellfire, then he said, well, you're a danger to people and you should get out of ministry. And I think that's true, isn't it? Because ultimately, what is the gospel about? The gospel is not about making you happy or healthier or richer. The gospel is about saving you from eternal hell. Eternal suffering. And once we know that that's what the gospel is all about, then we will know that we have to keep following the Lamb and be strong in the Lamb that we will tell the truth at work or at interviews even if we don't get that job because we know that eternal life is more important than that job. Or we will stand up for Jesus even, even if it means suffering. So I was reading uh, uh, this uh, commentary uh, by this guy called Ben Witherington and he tells this uh, story because uh, apparently there was this uh, biography written about this German guy which I never heard of before but his name was Martin Neumoller and he was one of the few pastors which stood up against Hitler during World War II and as a result uh, he was in prison and when he was in prison um, he met a, a, a chaplain who he knew before another Christian and the chaplain said to him what are you doing here? and uh, Martin Neumoller said what are you not doing in here? Right? because ultimately uh, this Martin Neumoller recognized that to be a Christian was to stand up to, to Hitler and it was not to compromise and I think that as Christians we have to recognize that is what we are called to do as Christians. Whatever we do, we must stand up for, for Jesus. And I think that uh, one of the saddest things that uh, happened to me a while ago was I remember meeting a, some parents of a child that I knew growing up. And I asked them how things were going with this child who I hadn't seen for a while. And they were saying, oh, you know, he's doing really well. You know, he went overseas, studied, you know, did this degree, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and no, life is really good, lah. He's a real success story. Then I asked him, oh, is he still going to church? And he said, oh no, he's not going to church anymore. In fact, you know, I'm not even sure whether he's a believer. Then, I was thinking to myself, if you really believe in eternal life and eternal hell, and you, you know, Revelation 14 here is very clear, then that guy's life is not a success, isn't it? It might be a success in the world's eyes, but he's not following the Lamb anymore. And he's facing eternity in hell. So, as parents, I was very disturbed that they could still be so happy for him. But, uh, that was that. I think the last uh, application is, is for, for you if you're not a Christian. Because if you're not a Christian, I think we should take this warning of Revelation 14 very clearly. And very uh, seriously. C.S. Lewis um, is a very good writer and he often makes points which... Uh, are very, very startling. And he made this very good point. He said that the one thing that people need to realize is that every single person lives forever. And that is true. 
whether they are in church today, whether they are shopping outside, whether they are still asleep after watching the election last night, or at the beach, everybody lives forever. But listen to what he says, right? He says, Now there are many good things which would not be worth bothering if I were going to live only 70 years, but which I had better be bothered about very seriously if I'm going to live forever and ever. See, that's true, isn't it? Because what he's actually saying is if we all live forever, then it is the quality of forever that counts, isn't it? See, if I'm only going to live for 70 years, then I can do all the things I want because 70 years is all there is. But if I'm going to live forever, that, that changes how I live today, isn't it? There are things that I should be bothered about because I'm worried about the quality of that eternity. So chapter 14, which comes after chapter 12 and 13, gives us that choice, isn't it? Will you choose the way of the world, the beast and Satan, but destroy your eternity? Or will you choose to follow the Lamb, to be pure and faithful, but have a wonderful eternity? Because everybody lives forever. But where will you be in that eternity? Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that there is life beyond this world and that there is life beyond this world for every single person. And because there is eternity, the choices that we make today will have implications, serious consequences into the future. If we choose to have the mark of the beast of this world, if we choose to commit adultery with this world and the gods of this world, we will enjoy life. We may enjoy life in this uh, life that we live, this short life. But the eternity that we have seen in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation is truly too awful to comprehend. Help us to see that it is much better to be sealed with your name and the name of the Lamb and to avoid hell and indeed to be in heaven with Jesus instead. Help us to have a great love for people, to share with people, not to be complacent or to be laid back. Help us to see for ourselves too that we must make the hard decisions to always be faithful to, to, to Jesus and always to be following Him. And dear Father, for those of us who are not sure, help us to see that we need to be sure very, very fast because the angel has warned us that the hour of judgment is coming and we do not know when that hour is coming. And we need to be ready now. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.